Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the recent sales in the Impressionist and modern market. David Norman was, for 30 years, a leading specialist at Sotheby's and the head of the department. This discussion is based on data from the November sales in New York. There is a more detailed analysis of this data for AMM Pro subscribers on the website. Feel free to register for AMM Pro and get your first month free to read this analysis. Simply go to artmarketmonitor.com and click on the AMM Pro tab. Now let's hear from David. David Norman, it's uh, great to have you back to talk about the Impressionist and modern sales from November. Well, it's great to be invited and uh, nice to talk to you on this very chilly New York morning. I wanted to talk about the overall impressions we have of the market going forward from those sales, in part because there was something about uh, almost $900 million in Impressionist and Modern Art sold in November, which is a big uptick in volume, but also sort of presence. You know, this is one of the first cycles in quite some time where the main event were the Impressionist and Modern uh, sales. Yes, I know we all got distracted by the Leonardo, but in some ways that kind of blotted out the sun for the rest of the contemporary sales. Earlier, the Impressionist works, especially because there was such quality around, really seemed to generate excitement. Oh, without question, particularly the Impressionist and modern market is entirely dependent on the, the flow of estate and collection materials. The market is always much more a question of supply. And I think as we saw on these sales, the demand does rise to absorb the greater number of consignments, the greater value of consignments, you know, particularly when it's all good, fresh material. However, a little bit under the skin or under the surface, I think we both observed, and there's a lot of interesting points to make, that is also a more nuanced picture, whether when we look across the board at the levels of bidding and the final hammer prices against estimates, you know, might tell a more equivocal story or one that makes making predictions a little bit tougher than just a strong general overview. Well, that, that's certainly true. I, mean, I, I think you're alluding to the fact that the top lots in the evening sale all sold, mostly, I should say, sold within the estimate range, with a few exceptions on sort of either end. I mean, the, the obvious ones were the, the Vincent van Gogh work that stunned everyone for when it sold for $81 million, even though it had a very healthy $50 million estimate. I mean, I'm assuming that's rare to get a shot at a, a work like that. Oh, exceedingly so. I mean, he is, uh, for new buyers particularly, and also for the Asian buyers, which are predominantly the Chinese, that's about the most magic, you know, name and, you know, amongst rare and most prized works by him. And when thinks about Van Gogh, just setting maybe in cumulative such high total values of precious and modern sales and yet an artist who really only had about two and a half years of production that are you know we consider the modern works uh, but you know one always does sort of trickle into the market there was a landscape at Sotheby's a few years ago from a Belgian collection named Franck and that made about 50 million. Uh, uh, there was also a stip life at Sotheby's that made over 60. So in relationship to those two prices, uh, this probably went in an understandable area. But I'll add one other thing. There are several works in these sales. I, I think most particularly that Van Gogh landscape as well as the Leger contrast of form where Probably standing around the galleries, if you talked, you know, to professionals and longtime collectors, uh, quite a number of them didn't see them as quite the prizes uh, that the final prices sort of indicated. 
in the case of that Van Gogh, it's a beautiful painting, but it makes you at eighty million dollars. It makes you wonder what someone would pay for some of the extraordinary Van Goghs that are still out there in in private hands. And that Leger is is sort of a not the most recognizable kind of work. That it it really requires a a, a dedicated collector. And still, even with the fact that it you know didn't quite make the the estimates were around, it sold for a, a very healthy seventy million dollars, which I, I believe is a record for him. Oh, yeah. I think the previous record uh, was a number of years ago. And uh, while I was at Sotheby's, we had uh, a piece, I think it was called Woman in Blue, that made around $40 million. And again, with the movement of the market, the passage of time, rarity, uh, that does make sense. And, and it does offer another observation I'd make, but I'm sure we'll come to that later, which is when sellers benefited from guarantees and uh, did or didn't when they rejected them, uh, you know, the the Bass picture, uh, I think that group was unguaranteed and that performed extremely well. You know, part of the reason why part of this uh, conversation is to offer a little market gossip. I had heard on several occasions there was uh, the prospect for private off that might have netted an even better price on the Leger. That's where the market has gotten to. Uh, You know, when you have a seller like the Bass family who make a number of trades in in all sorts of different markets and uh, have extensive holdings, there's a confidence or an ability to take risk that many other sellers who, you know, are relying on the assets. And and the Leger was a... um, a foundation uh, a sale, correct? Yes, as as I understand, yeah. Right. Uh, so from a significant private collection. So break. actually, what's kind of su- su- surprising about that is, in in generally, you would have thought that they would be more inclined to take a safe, uh, strong guarantee offer. Uh, know know that they'd reached a number they could count on, and not worry about squeezing a few more dollars a- out. Whereas the Bass fa- family, you know, this is the, the kind of confidence that you have. When we've seen other big sellers in the midst of, you know, a few years ago when everything was being guaranteed, go in and sell on their own terms and do uh, quite well. So it, it's really just about your 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 risk profile, as they like to say in the, the financial markets. The true risk and uh, and on the other side as well, expectations, you know, so you're right, particularly in uh, cases like foundations and things going to charitable work, uh, like the Diamondstein Spielvogel, one definitely you see the sellers want to lock in prices and then others, you know, like that big leger, you know, perhaps their expectations were such that one didn't want to risk giving up the large overage commission. You said earlier that you thought in both cases there were people at the previews who looked at those pictures and thought they weren't necessarily the best uh, examples. And then you were just saying there are people who thought there was a, a much higher ceiling to the uh, Leger. Are you saying that it's sort of barbelled out that there there were people had strong opinions one way or the other, but not necessarily there's no consensus on both the quality and the price of those work? You know, certainly we're both extraordinarily rare. The Leger even more. So there was really a split camp about how they might do. I would suppose more people that I spoke to, and it's far from an official sampling, probably undervalued or had lower expectations for the Van Gogh and higher expectations for the Leger. And again, you can contribute that to another number of things like a degree of confidence on Bitter's part that Van Gogh has such a well-established market at the top end where there's really only been one Leger in years uh, that even went over $30 million. And also that artists like Van Gogh and Monet are such internationally known names, uh, whereas Leger might just have a much more limited market of a sort of connoisseur group. Yes, it certainly seems like you don't get the blockbuster name value out of it, no matter how rare that uh, Leger is, uh, that you might uh, from you know a Van Gogh that's not just a Van Gogh, but very recognizable as a Van Gogh. Well, 
while we're on the sort of uh, sort of disappointment side or expectation <laughs> side, I know. I, Why did I bring us in? Well, that I just there, there are only really three of the top uh, evening lots that sold anywhere below their uh, low estimates, which is uh, both a testimony to the strength of the overall market and of the impressionist and modern market, and even of the the skill at the auction houses in running these you know highly managed uh, uh, sales but I, I thought it's just worth talking about those two other works because all three are quite different and I don't think there's a common story to to them uh, you know the the mid-range one there was a uh, a very interesting but um, very odd both just for in market terms and in the content of the picture there's this large Picasso I, it, maybe it was even a work on paper but it was a black and white work called the rape that sold for uh, under the eight million dollar hammer price, it, you know, ended out netting out like o uh, almost eight point seven million. It was actually an extraordinary uh, uh, work, uh, and maybe it was just the estimate was too uh, too Im ambitious. I also can't help but wonder, especially in this climate, that uh, uh, buying a work called The Rape is um, uh, a, a sort of bold and um, <laughs> a kind of classic kind of move maneuver. <laughs> Yes, and I remember that piece so well. We uh, at Sotheby's sold it a number of years ago when I think everyone considered it, uh, you know, an absolutely magnificent uh, work of draftsmanship, a powerful image, just beautifully done. However, it was violent imagery, you know, and just to be direct, we thought going to be a a huge uphill battle to sell that it made around 13 million dollars and so it lost you know something on the equivalent of half its value coming back up for sale you know i think there's some explanations for that there actually was a chinese bidder or at least an asian on the phone with sotheby's powerhouse patty wong who looked to be executing the guaranteed bid at uh, at about seven, and then it just sold to one of Sotheby's uh, London representatives at 7.5. Um, it's interesting. I think it's a combination of a piece coming back to market that had done so well, and perhaps it always elicits questions, a certain change uh, in the you know, bidding profile uh, at this particular moment. And I think, as you say, also taste, because Phillips had this very beautiful, but decorative, and I wouldn't say particularly challenging work of Francois Gillot sleeping. And that made more, that made about $9 million. Uh, 9.3, so, yes. Exactly. So it's kind of... Uh, uh, it's well, instructive, but I don't know exactly what our lessons are that, you know, well, well, actually so the rape was a more powerful, more brilliantly executed work. But maybe, as you say, in this day and age, uh, the subject was was more challenging to the pre present audience of bidders. But I kind of think it might be as much or more so, you know, the reappearance of something on the market that did so spectacularly well the first time. And usually when things do spectacularly well, it's because two bidders will drive the price up about 40% above all others. So you take one of those people out who's now become the seller and, you know, you lose one participant who was the driver of the price. And maybe it rolls back to what this was, the, the natural repeated value of this work. How long ago was the rape sold? Definitely more than uh, five years ago. In today's market terms, that's not actually coming back back to market immediately. Certainly <laughs> not if you measure it in the contemporary postal art. You, you know, you get something doubling in a year. Unfortunately, this was falling by you know 40 or 50 percent and after multiple years the the one at phillips it's worth po pointing out was estimated at such a fraction of its selling price that yeah. that surely has a bearing on it right you know you saw two works coming from very different ends of the price spectrum and converging within sort of half a million dollars of, of each other both different in size and content and overall uh, emotional effect and yet they they converged at the sort of same uh 
level. One, one, as you say, because it's sort of a bit of a compromise, and and the other because uh, clearly two people thought they had a great find. Once people get drawn into the uh, the bidding, and of course this isn't our topic, but the uh, Da Vinci was the ultimate example of that, and people who didn't want to let go. And I, I kept wondering, what is the one price that is the limit to one bidder's desire? You know, when did when would that second bidder drop out? But on these two Picassos, they are very illustrative because the one at Phillips was fresh to the market. It was a low estimate. It had a universal, easy appeal. And it did become the subject of the last two bidders just not letting go. Uh, and there again, you, you get that 40, 50 percent premium added up just because of that intensity of competition. The predictions before were maybe somewhere from four to six million dollars, and uh, there it went so much, so much higher. It'd be interesting if it ever came back on the market a few years ago whether it would experience the same phenomena as the rape. Although I tend to think the beauty of it, you know, might allow that one to hold its value in the future, if not do better. Another interesting thing I'm seeing in the market is the continued strength of great works on paper, putting aside the fact that that Picasso didn't do as uh, well. There really were lots of great performances for works on paper. And in some cases, again, I did see Asian representatives of the auction houses bidding, and that's also a bit of a change. So many times new buyers from that region of the world or very suddenly countries have always shied away from works on paper, worried about the fragility, worried about them and the humid environments where they live. There is, There was always, an, and still is to a large number of new buyers, a, a concern and a bias toward works on canvas. But it does speak to the fact that, you know, quality will out, I think sculpture as well, as well as things like more esoteric works like the group that started off the Christie sales. We're breaking down the bias between works on paper and um, canvas, you know, this the idea mm -hmm. that oil paintings are the apex of uh, artistic achievement. And, and now, one, because, you know, there are fewer of these great oil paintings that are not in museums, but two, because things are so valuable, it brings up the value of these quality images, you know, these beautiful works. Uh, in and of themselves that happen to be on paper. I mean, I've certainly heard from several people over the years that, you know, they think like Van Gogh's works on paper is a, is a perfect sort of spot in the market where, you know, highly recognizable artist, uh, you know, uh, uh, fantastic images, most of the paintings, you know, as we're seeing here, you know, $80 million for a, a very good one, which says even a not so good, good one is still a, a substantial amount of money. So to get works of art that are not, you know, in the mid eight figures, people are more than willing to spend real money on works on paper. You know, and, and people often led by the professionals and dealers, they, they're sort of seeking out supply and will migrate in certain areas. You know, another example, aside from just looking toward other medium like sculpture and works on paper, are periods within the artist's career. And this is already a pretty well observed and known one with late Picasso, you know, where uh, those used to be you know, so relatively low in price and the low millions of dollars for so long, late Picasso was considered, you know, the end of, a, you know, a career uninspired and repetitive. And now, you know, the, the best ones have been rightly seen as powerful works that could be collected and serve as a foundation for post-war and contemporary work. Look how uh, easily, you know, one might live with the Basquiat um, or others. But then as that develops, the market does get a little discerning and you, you start to find a stratification. Uh, you know, there was a, a strong late Picasso at uh, Sotheby's, but still did sort of, you know, only moderately well making its low estimate, I think, at about uh, $8 million. And uh, again, telling you about the strength, I'm sure you'll leave us to it. As high as the percentages was, uh, again, when you roll back to just the hammer prices, uh, I know you've charted this, and I saw some uh, results that the hammer prices at each sale were 
only a small margin above the cumulative low estimate. It said that these around 14 or 15 percent, Christie's around 16 percent. So many times there was either just one bid or two, and then we're talking about the phenomenon of the third party bids and the engineering of things. Um, and, uh, and other times it, it might be competitive, but then when it was all over, one noticed it only hit the low estimate or one bit above. Yes. And then, and then when you, um, add in fees, it, it began to look like, a uh, you know, a, a better number, but it was still, you know, as we, we've been sort of saying over the last few years, these are sort of private sales in public, uh, yeah. where all the work has already been done. Others are being given the opportunity to participate, but usually at a, a bit of a disincentive because it's not like there, there's a, you know, the, the temptation of a bargain, uh, there. It's already fully priced. It makes it very hard for a bidder to sort of take in the, the possibility of chasing after and getting outbid uh, themselves. And and to answer your question about the statistics, yes, overall, when you aggregate all of this, the um, the hammer total uh, uh, for the evening sales was uh, 666 million against an aggregate low estimate of 571 million. So that's about 17% uh, above, which, you know, is, is not um, uh, terrible. It, it just says that the, the, Pricing is strong. That the the you know you're not going to get someone to put a crazy low estimate. Maybe like that that one to one point five on the Phillips uh, uh, piece, which got people so excited. I mean, and and to to follow up, you the three Picassos uh, that basically converged around the same price level. 8.7, 9.26, and 9.3 are the three we were just discussing with that late Picasso, the um, you know uh, one with the sword, uh, being right in the middle. And you know, it sort of says something about that that market. Here are three very different works uh, from an obvious you know enormous uh, a body of work, but all falling at this this sort of nine million dollar level. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? And also that, you know, two of the most bankable names that, you know, come up with more frequency, you know, as opposed to a major Van Gogh or Leger, and have always been the favorite of new buyers, Picasso and Monet, they, they really didn't, the results really didn't show you know, a tremendous consistent strength. I mean, it was really quite surprising on the upper end to everybody about that very large 50s Picasso, Christie's that did so well. But in other cases, you know, the, a lot of the Monet's were just, you know, hitting around the low or were entirely dependent on Chinese bidding at Sotheby's. The Jivan Ipan was just a Patty Wong's bidder. The Ace Flows were really only competed for by Patty's Asian bidder and uh, Sotheby's Asian chairman, Kevin Ching. Um, and so they're, they're not on a more international um, basis. Uh, so I, I think one of the only Monet's perhaps that went to a non-Asian buyer was when uh, Nancy White bought a beautiful Monet Morning on the Scent, which I actually always expected to do even better. But uh, I don't know if the other bidder was a uh, Asian bidder or not. It's, it'd be interesting that we even get a split of the nationality of the audience from one picture to another by the same artist. Well, you you did a great job of anticipating the question because the the third of the three lots that sold below the estimates among the top sort of twenty five or thirty was the um, Monet that arch of roses mm -hmm. uh, from Giverny and and you know it 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 still made nineteen point four million dollars. It's not a, a cheap painting, and I, I believe that was you know to a a, a guarantor uh, and all, but you know you you. You raise that interesting uh, thing uh, question, which is Monet isn't fully as recognized. I mean, to a professional like you, but I think popularly isn't as fully recognized as being such a mainstay driver of the market um, among uh, other people, as say uh, Picasso is. And yet, Monet uh, uh, is a powerful in terms of the you know the number of works and the overall value of of those works. And in this particular case. You 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 pointed out the 
the um, Morning on the Seine was the top one at 23 mi million, and then there was another just below that at uh, uh, you know for, by a few thousand dollars, and then this uh, one that uh, somewhat disappointed, uh, at least just in terms of its estimates. Do you just think that it was they they couldn't? You know, it seemed like a, a the classic kind of picture that you would be able to attract people to is very pretty. Uh, you know, it's not it's not like there was a, the something uh, wrong with it. It just didn't seem to um, uh, attract uh, enough attention. Well, I would differ a little bit because I I do think Monet is is a mainstay, and you know, particularly out here in the private market, all I ever hear is, "Do you have a Picasso or a Monet?" But I, I guess I'm looking at a little bit more of the example in this sort of, you know, shifting taste by new buyers or new generations with regard to the pieces. Now, these sort of rose trellis bridge, we had one at Sotheby's before I left that sold for about 20-ish. Um, it was an Asian buyer at the time who was the only bidder, as was the case with this one and this picture itself sold um at christie's years ago I, I think it might have sold for just a little bit more but you know sort of as lovely as this was it, it was a bit pretty for some um you know and you didn't see any western bidder you know go for that versus the morning on the sen at christie's you know which was bought by a western bidder through an american dealer representative and i think was just more modern picture. It had more abstract qualities. And I think both paintings kind of represent a, a, a change, you know, in the taste for Monet. Uh, and I, I think another thing, it's also going back to this idea of these prices and how strong or not a foundation they're, they're built on, because the uh, that uh, picture, the ice flow pictures at Sotheby's that made twenty point five, you know, was really on tears, uh, you know, on those paintings. And as a matter of fact, one who bid quite a lot in the Sotheby's sale on multiple works, and I think they might have been the same bidder at Christie's. You can tell it was the same person because. You know, it was both the same representative on the phone. I was watching and saw that representative not switch phones for a new bidder. And in some cases, you could catch the uh, paddle number and they were the same. Uh, so, again, like both Monet's at Sotheby's at the higher level, which ended up representing, you know, maybe $40 million or more in price, were really sort of driven by one Asian bidder and it was, you know, and was the only buyer on another. So, and actually Monet didn't perform so great at uh, Christie's other than uh, the morning on the Seine. So I guess we have to look at what's well, a question of supply and quite a number have come out on average over the years and or what type of Monet is attracting, you know, the newest buyer as well as the more seasoned crew who still make up more than half the bidders in every sale, Americans and uh, Western Europeans. Are we to sort of take away from what you just said about, and we've seen this in, uh, over a number of sales cycles, not consistently, it'll happen here and there where there'll be a, a, a buyer or two who will walk away with five or six lots, um, often with a uh, Asian Chinese, you know, representative. Are we to take away from that that that's someone sort of buying an instant collection, or someone who views this as a safe place to park money so that they're going to, you know, acquire some good high quality art, but maybe not, you know, uh, spend too much, but know that this is somewhere that they can either create it up or put it in a home and all. Or is there some dealer who's got a bunch of clients who just knows they can move this work to the right uh, people? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's no one answer to, to to that question, but I'm just sort of curious what you're feeling about when you see that that is at this particular moment. Um, the phenomena of this one bidder, and in the last few years, often an Asian bidder sort of dominating the spending in the sale, <clears throat> both in terms of the buying and the underbidding. One thing is a lot of times these people, you know, might enter the market for a season or two and then they sort of lay low or they disappear for whatever reasons. And you don't see these too often 
uh, multiple bidders and buyers in the sale. Again, the I think the Van Gogh buyer Christie's, I could look back at my catalog, they bought a very lovely $8 million Renoir before that in the sale and probably bid on some more things. You know, a lot of times those that burst and they're very active on the scene, like you said in the first part of your question, they may be a one-time only or it may take a few years for them to come back in the market. And you know, and there are aspects in one sense of, you know, artwork is a safe harbor. Artwork is a very tangible, easily movable place to store a lot of value to have it out of one's country. And with regard to that, then I always feel a little bit cautious about what does that one season of prices or that one price for a picture mean for the evolution of price for in the next couple of years. I'm more cautious about that. Now, on the other hand, there is this phenomena of so many people building private museums. And then that's a more sustainable uh, source, I believe, driving the market where uh, – you know, it becomes whether it's and it's happening as much in Asia as it, you know, it's it's been happening in the uh, U.S. But in my early days and a lot of my career, that was not a driving factor at all. It, individuals and private peoples, particularly new bidders, were not buying with the intent of creating um, private institutions. So whereas there's sort of always the old motivation of having a trophy, having a tangible asset, having a hedge on market fluctuations or currency ones. Um, there is now another segment that I hope is more sustaining and it's giving us a better pricing basis that are people with the intent of creating permanent collections. I do think that this institution building, which is clearly driving the market in all aspects and yes the uh the leonardo overshadows everything of this last season and it has to be uh, uh said that you know it was an explicit part of their pitch at christie's that the leonardo was the foundation for making a museum uh great and uh it turns out of course that the buyer placed it in a museum so mm -hmm. you know it it, it 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 may be coincidence but it certainly resonates uh, uh, that sort of idea, though it is is kind of funny that you don't think of a, a an auction which has very little in the way of thematic organization, except that there are some collectors' uh, 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 works uh, involved as a place where you would sort of build the foundation of a, a, a museum. But I guess if you know you've got some high quality collectors as you did this last season with their uh, works available, it would be more incentive for for a buyer to to try and you know get their hands on as much as possible. Yeah. And also quite interesting that institutional buyers that have had the most enormous impact, you know, particularly in the Middle East and, you know, now in China, um, the ambition, the importance does seem to continue to go to 20th century Western European work. I suppose it's to make these places more international destinations. So interesting how art could serve for either cultural diplomacy or just simply the expansion of, you know, emerging or ever strengthening economies looking to you know, have a more prominent profile in the world. You talked about the Picasso, uh, the Jacqueline, you know, that was surprisingly high for about 36 million. It did seem like a less likely picture to have just sort of taken off. Do you know what, what, what happened there? That was one of the ones where the, you know, predictions were so much lower. And I think the, you know, the result was about something like 60% overestimate the uh the hammer price was about 32.5 or or 60 percent over the low estimate when you're you're just talking about hammer price um and that was driven i'm looking at my notes i think by you know only two bidders there was connor jordan uh on the phone and uh i i well, up, up at $20 million, I saw one of the Chris's representatives, I think it was Ronnie bidding, but from 20 to 32.5, I think, again, it was a, a two-man race. So there again, you go 60% was sort of the premium of uh, competition. And I've sensed before the sale, maybe Christie's wasn't necessarily as 
confident or anticipating that uh, because, you know, a lot of collectors or through their advisors all seem to be asking each other, what do you think of that picture? Um, you know, so again, there was no consensus at all that it was going to, uh, you know, do that well. And uh, I heard that it was an Asian buyer and a few people you know, who seemed to know, uh, said it might have been someone uh, from Jakarta. But at the end of the day, it was, and you know, for those who either loved it or hated it, it was a powerful painting. It had tremendous wall power. There was a very similar lesser one that had sold very well, I think, at um, Sotheby's in London. So uh, I think that was that was it. It just had... Tremendous scale, tremendous impact. It's because one all everyone's welcome to their their taste. And I suppose I've said a number of times in our conversation and others, well, you just have two bidders really driving this price and you take one out and what are you left with? But historically that's also always the case. And in other than extraordinary moments, you know, the auctions do tend, you know, to get one or two aggressive bidders on a, on a lot of top lots. And um, I think uh, something interesting, and again, I always skip topics, but thinking about something you said earlier and us about museum building is, you know, how sources of excess liquidity, you know, get, you know, and the money gets converted to art. And it's been in all different industries evolving over the period of time from reap shipping fortunes to American real estate fortunes to hedge fund fortunes to you know, the end the long held fortunes in the Middle East of sort of petrodollars, you know, being converted to art, the you know, the oligarchy in Russian. It's uh fascinating and over my thirty years how there is always one new big player or one new source of income where people you know, a sliver of the ultra wealthy will migrate in and start buying uh, Western art. So I guess one thing I've been offering was some of these pictures aren't necessarily built on broad bases of collectors. But then on the other hand, the art market always does see somebody come in, you know, either a nationality group or one driven by previously non-existent, you know, sources of quick and tremendous wealth come into the market. I also feel Another reason quite a lot of work came into the market this season also has to do with Rockefeller. Uh, I know I was advising some people in one estate, and we talked a lot about do you go before or after Rockefeller. And I think an awful lot of sellers felt, you know, let's get ahead of that because the supply of that material is going to dominate all the market attention. Uh, I think we all expected to do phenomenally well. Um but an awful lot of money and focus is going to be directed toward that. So I certainly know of a number of people who did consign because they wanted to get ahead of that, not get sort of lost in the sauce. It's going to be very hard to separate when that sale comes what people are buying, whether they are buying the works or they're buying the provenance. Uh, and and I, I can see how uh, uh, either competing with it is obviously something you don't want to do, but also just following it would uh, create a, a, a storyline uh, that one might have to work against or for. I mean, it's it's it, it could be easily a, a something that sells too well for Rockefeller mm -hmm. could make it difficult for someone to sell their equally good work, but maybe not necessarily one that's going to receive receive the the Rockefeller premium, if you will. So uh, I can imagine you know, the. You don't want to if the the Rockefeller stuff is sells in May. You don't want to be in June uh, in London selling anything that's vaguely comparable, right? Because the conversation will still be dominated by Rockefeller. Yeah, I, I think there's right. I think there's more unknowns to you know selling, uh, you know, immediately afterwards, and then also, Marion, I was thinking. The results of this sale, the impact of things being, you know, managed or engineered, uh, single bids, you know, establishing prices against high estimates or the phenomena that will come with Rockefeller or maybe things like the Bass Van Gogh. They set expectations in the, the minds of the settlers, but, 
you know, the impacts are not uniform. I think the expectations of a seller and a buyer are not so uniform these days because with these deals and people making, you know, the third parties, the overage commissions or the auction houses or the uneven rebating of buyer's premium, you know, a, a potential buyer looks at these results and thinks one thing, whereas potential sellers, you know, it could be a little bit confusing exactly what people walk away with on the nets in these big sales. Negotiating your deal in the presence of these other deals is going to be either uh, you know difficult or uh, uh, maybe too easy in some cases. I mean, this this is this is one of the things that everyone seems to forget about the, these markets. Is yes, there's there's a lot of risk of underperformance, but outperformance has its own problem. So there's a lot of emotion loaded into you know the the receiver of the estimate. Everyone, you know, thinks theirs is the equal or better. There's some interesting works that came up in sale that had been in the private market and hadn't sold. Uh, and then, you know, pretty well, and most notably the greet in the Christie sale. That McGreet, I think it was, you know, commonly understood that it had an asking price for a period of time of $25 million. I'm sure that would be you know, negotiable. And I'm sure it's so painful now also that I'm in the dealer world to see, you know, something you offered at a strong, but an estimate, you know, you believed was at least a supportable starting price. Then that comes into the auction at $14 million with a guarantee. And I think a guarantee did. It made 18 million hammers. So we get down to about 20 million. That's where someone might have ended up if they engaged in the, uh, in the private, um, you know, market, yeah, but yeah, it was a twenty twenty five. To ask without precedence, you know, it was too much to ask without precedent. But in the end of the day, the market, you know, kind of got there. But did that serve the seller as well? Because as as we see, it was guaranteed. So, you know, if the low estimate was fourteen, you know, there was millions and millions of dollars of excess over the guarantee. So. When you take those additional fees out, you know, an, an interesting thing is how exactly did the seller do, you know, versus if maybe there was an engagement in the private sale uh, process. So, so we're going back to saying that, you know, it's one thing to have uh, uh, a work like that in, in someone's gallery or at a, a you know, a booth uh, at, uh, you know, in Basel and, and have people come by and admire it. And another thing for it to be, you know, on the wall at, at uh, an auction house and be able to see and hear about the interest and gauge the sort of public chatter uh, and know that there's a, a final deadline, uh, you know, one night that week that you have to make your decision. And that seems to have gotten people off the mark. Uh, and 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 also, I suppose the, the the impression that it was being offered at twenty five, and here it potentially could sell for fourteen. Get uh, certainly gets the the you know the juices flowing for for people who think there's an opportunity. Right, and and again, like everything, it could go both ways. Now being out here privately, I also see, you know really great prices being accomplished for sellers, you know, if they can be offered the exclusive shot at something and, you know, they know the rarity and they don't want to go through the competition of auction. Um, Cause everyone who goes to auction, we always get excited. And when I was there, we always thank the underbidder, but they're never so thrilled at all for having driven up the price. They really wanted the picture, but auctions do of course work extremely well if the seller can tolerate a low reserve. Uh, so, you know, that, that goes back to an early question of risk toleration and, you know, confidence or lack thereof uh, in how a work may perform on the, uh, you know, for the, uh, from the seller's perspective. Because uh, there are works in these sales which could have done better privately and, you know, so there's there's sort of two different venues, but I think when you have a low estimate and a very classic imagery, a lot of times the auction house is fine. People might come into the bidding who you couldn't necessarily have targeted in advance. One of the bigger stories of this last go round were the Chagalls. I mean, especially <laughs> the um, 
the big one that made uh, uh, twenty eight million, but there were there were several. Uh, uh, you know, the circus w- w- made sixteen million. I mean, this is it's you know been a while since we've seen. It's not that we don't see Chagall's; they're 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 around often and often you know uh, highly valued, but ones that were competitive and uh, people seemed you know uh, uh, eager uh, to to acquire. Right. And as far as I could see, all uh, all Russian and Chinese on the Chagalls, it was definitely, you know, again, that Patty Wong Klein. And then there was a Russian rep uh, for Sotheby's. And that was really a party battle. And it is another name that always, you know, resonates. On the one hand, there's such a large supply, such a big body of work. And so many come up that are left wanting. But then when you, you know, get into something of the incredible quality of the lovers or just the fabulous, you know, impact of the circus, the bidders at the top end step in. And and this also goes back to a comment you made, buyers, the new buyers these days, they come in at the top and they remain at the top and they don't cut their teeth in the middle range uh, at all. So again, you'll get this huge divergence in, in prices between the top for, you know, an artist like Chagall and then the mass of the middle and the lower amount, which is, you know, for the most part, an extremely flat, you know, market, if not weak at times. And the day sales reflect that. The day sales look like they're shrinking in volume. They're certainly shrinking in the sense that the the hammer totals are lower than the um, low estimates. And even in terms of just the sort of sell-through rate, rates, which aren't terrible, the day sale uh, was 77%. Uh, There's just no real sort of energy in those sales. And the I, I don't can't track the average price, but the average price itself is, uh, you know, a, a, a far cry, not just from the evening sales, but also from the average price of a day sale in contemporary art, which I think, you know, we, we tend to view uh, impressionist and modern art as more stable uh, uh, in, in terms of its uh, demand. And it seems like that's the part of the, that market that, um, you know, is waning. And we always saw the day sales as sort of the leading edge or the canary in the coal mine when, you know, the evening sales might still be doing really well. And all of a sudden we started to see really poor performance in the day sales. And it was often predictive around where the evening sales were going. But once again, the analysis here is made more complex or a little more cloudy because um, the influx of new buyers really is all uh, exclusively in the evening sale. Um, and and so also with generational shifts, a lot of that secondary, tertiary, impressionist works, uh, there really isn't so much a new generation to step in and support that market. Uh, it used to always be the new buyers, you know, years ago was the Japanese, but the new influx of money is coming from people with vastly greater sums of wealth than ever before and really only interested in the top and also interested in the more modern pieces in the sale and less, you know, what used to be the bread and butter impressionist, um, you know, and moderate Chagall's, which I'm just not sure when an audience for that will ever reconstitute. Material that might have been in a day sale a decade or two decades ago, the good stuff is is ending up, you know, whether it's a work on paper as you discussed er, er, earlier, or a, a small painting. Uh, all those things are ending up in the evening sales now, uh, and it's harder to find the kind of material that would have been dealer stock or a really avid collector who wants to, you know, buy the themselves that they're going to go and and buy from there, let alone compete over which I guess makes it even less appealing to consign to, to the day sale. This phenomenon of promotion of day sale material, which I remember us starting on, you know, to the chagrin of the those running the day sales where we felt, listen, we need to start the sale off with a nice, like Sotheby's did in mid-six-figure McGreek gouache or, you know, something like that to kick things off. We know they'll sell well. And so, you know, sort of rob some of the quality out of that. And then there's 
you know, like you saw, the kind of pulling in things from other fields. Again, in the Sotheby's sale, you know, not only was there a Giorgio O'Keefe, but, and I thought it was a great move, they put that Hammershoy painting right in the beginning, and so many people never even heard of the artist names if they weren't typically following 19th century sales, and that was terrific. The low estimate was 2.5, and the hammer was uh, 5.3, and I don't necessarily think it would have done that well in its traditional uh, 19th century sale. So it's interesting you take a good work into this context, <laughs> like most remarkably the Leonardo, or weirdly like the uh, the race car, and you do reach a new audience that might really drive it up. Uh, and it's also uh, a function of um, the difficulty of getting supply for the auctions, you know, so they, they do pull out of American sales and 19th century sales and even Latin American sales. I think there was a piece again in the Sotheby's sale. Uh, I think they really needed in competition with Bass, particularly uh, to somehow build up the substance of the sale more broadly. But, but it also mirrors, I mean, I, I, I think you're right about all that. And it, 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 it uh, it's both a smart move and somewhat sort of an o- obvious uh, move in terms of the promotion idea, but it also has this other effect of mirroring what you discussed earlier about um, Asian uh, uh, and, and buyers from other, you know, what we used to call emerging markets. They've now fully emerged. Um, mm-hmm. Their own eclecticism is now being reflected in these eclectic sales. So Sotheby's merges uh, a, a great 20th century Latin American a, a art with some uh, uh, interesting 19th century, you know, uh, Danish a, a art into a, a sort of willing buying audience that begins to see these works as being peers in some way or another. And Christie's has been promoting this idea of cross uh, um, category sales in in all sorts of different venues. And you know they took a lot of. I think it's sort of a, a, a sort of a spurious uh, criticism, but you know that they put the Leonardo in a contemporary sa- uh, sale. But from the perspective of someone buying art in the Gulf or even South America, and certainly in Asia, those things that you know that end of the telescope, the differences get flattened out, and of course they should be you know two lots later. I mean, it, mm-hmm, it, right. it doesn't matter if it's a, a compelling image by an important artist, and uh, you know you're you're being asked to you know think about buy, buying it uh, at the same time, and and I think that's probably uh, will you know continue to happen more. Certainly, just the the very fact that we've squeezed all this art into one week, where it used to be. Mm-hmm separated by several days in two different uh, 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 weeks is another version of that same uh, telescoping. And it's the, you know, the need to keep and capture people's attention, just like the art fairs have become, you know, necessary, almost necessary for the survival for galleries to have a concentrated events. The, the auction houses are doing the same. And for three reasons, by necessity, because it's hard to maintain a consistent quality of supply if you're staying sort of narrowly within your, your field, like Impressionism and Modern. Um, and, you know, an opportunity to market to people who wouldn't necessarily see these things in, in these sort of lesser off-season sales uh, and the challenges for the auction houses, which they're ever, you know, looking at and trying to find solutions to, um, you know, to increase revenues, broaden the market, raise the price points for pictures in a context where a lot of the traditional categories, you know, are, are shrinking. Um, so maybe you just pluck out the top ones from other fields, you put them in the sales, you beef up the sales and you also, you know, just, just sort of try to create, you know, a process and a market for just top quality, whatever it will be, and do this crossover for the audience. Right. Um, or bring more attention to uh, uh, an artist. Like, I mean, it's interesting, Sonia uh, Delaunay uh, had a fair mm-hmm. about seven and a half million dollars worth of work sell right. uh, in November. <laughs> uh, and I don't know uh, when that the last time that happened uh, uh, was uh, and, and sort of put her among the top, uh, you know, 
20 or 30 artists uh, uh, sold uh, uh, then. Or there was that great um, uh, Van Rieselberg, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, harbor scene, which I, I don't think really advanced in terms of value from the last time it was sold uh, 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 terribly. But it was a striking work uh, and, you know, uh, uh, certainly captured a fair amount of uh, uh, attention. Uh, you know, m- meanwhile, there are a lot of artists from the, you know, who who are reliable drivers of both value and excitement, who there's just not a lot of work around. Right? It's not, not like there aren't a lot of Giacometti's in the, the world, but there was very little Giacometti sold. Very few, right. You know? and, and I think that's just part of the, you know, the seasonality of things, right? You know, things are fallow for a little while to help regenerate for the next uh, uh, run of the market. Uh, but, but you know, the, that was the the thing that makes you most curious is w- what we're going to see next. Uh, right. And, and, you know, even with, uh, with, with um, Rockefeller somewhat uh, you know, almost providing a break, it does look like there, there are more artists from, from these periods that people could get excited about. Maybe not at the, you know, 50 uh, million and above level, but certainly, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, uh, seven and low eight figures. I have, I have maybe one final thought. You know, we we were talking about the sales being highly managed, and a lot of times these being you know private sales that already took place being uh, executed in public. Sitting in the beginning of these sales and listening to the auctioneers like speed through the number of additional lots that are now backed by a third party uh, is quite extraordinary. I couldn't even, in the Sotheby's Contemporary Sale, I literally couldn't keep up with recording numbers. Ollie Parker was saying probably as purposely fast as he possibly could. Uh, So it's also an interesting phenomenon, not just that the auction houses are using third parties, but clearly so many people, or at least a small group of people, are are so driven and want to participate, you know, in these sales. So, you know, again, markets might change, A, when maybe there's a change in the economy and people feel a little differently or, or interest rates go up or the markets go down. But I think that also has an impact on a whole new constituency, which is this rising population of people eager to, it seems, step in and take over guarantees. Well, you know, that does raise a very interesting um, dynamic within how the auction houses function. Uh, I, I remember kind of vividly when Amy Capalazzo was running private sales at Christie's, asking about, you know, the rise in private sales and her point was well previously there wasn't enough volume in the market and that you couldn't cannibalize the auctions to run private sales uh, and by that she just me- meant that you you know it was your responsibility to present a great auction and trying to sell something on the side that wouldn't get the visibility and attention was hard unless there was just enough work being sold or, or around all uh, the year, you know, uh, that you didn't have to wait till May or or November mm-hmm. or uh, uh, June or February uh, to to do it, which made a great deal of sense. And and then it looks like we've almost come um, back around the other side of it, where I don't know what the private sales numbers are like these days, but now it's the the they're arranging private sales before the auction, giving the auction option. The only uh, problem with these sort of fused public and private uh, events is it makes it hard for someone who is not well-known and uh, well-versed in the auction houses to gain access to those uh, guarantees. You you auction the, the work, but there's no a public auction <laughs> for the, the third party guarantee you got to know the right people and have the right uh, uh, arrangements and so it, it's sort of uh, 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 an odd strategy because it privileges a, a a specific group of people which may or may not be uh, in terms of running your business the you know lo- to your long term uh, uh, advantage so it, it is kind of fascinating to see you know 
the perception we're beginning to create, and I think they even remarked about this after one of the um, uh, Sotheby's sales about not having had a sale below ninety percent for you know X number of auction cycles. When when ninety percent becomes the new floor of you know what you're minimally expected to be able to do <laughs> the sale, <laughs> it, it kind of changes the dynamic uh, uh, out there. Yeah, a wonderful point. Well, thank you, David. I, I appreciate your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Our Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 